thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Good morning. It's amazing how these things work, eh? We've got millions of calls today, but I do want us to talk about the science story we've picked, uh, not just because uh, we're waiting for calls, but actually because I think it's really, really fascinating, the big pair of studies on coffee and mortality. Yeah, um, this will probably be wonderful music to the ears of the majority of people who work in high-pressure jobs and get up for early breakfast shows on the radio all over the world, that kind of thing, because... For a long while, people have been told, well, coffee could be bad for you and you, know, you should be careful about a high-octane lifestyle. There are two papers in the Annals of Internal Medicine this week, big medical journal. They're done by two groups independently, one group in the US, one group looking at data from Europe. Together, they consider nearly three-quarters of a million people. And actually, if you drink coffee, your mortality rate appears to be lower. And there appears to be a dose-dependent relationship so if you have one cup of coffee according to the u.s data then your mortality rate at any given age drops by about 12 percent if you drink three or more cups of coffee every day your mortality rate drops by 18 percent so these are big numbers Mm. do we know why no and the interesting observations in the paper first first it's important to be a bit cautious with this but the first point is it's an observational study Mm. so what they did was to recruit very large numbers of people, ask them about their lifestyle and then follow up to see what happened to them. It wasn't interventionalist in any way. All they can say in this paper is that uh, there is this association. This does not prove a causal relationship. That's the first point. The second is that the same was true for both decaf and caffeinated coffee. So it's not the caffeine that's doing this. There's some caffeine-independent effect and it could be that there are chemicals in coffee that do have a life-prolonging effect On the other hand, it could be that people that can afford to drink three cups of coffee a day, either because they have the money to do that or the time to do that, may well be more affluent. People who are more affluent are probably eating a better diet, they're probably having a better lifestyle, and they may just have a calmer life, all Mm. of which we know add up to a longer life. So at the moment it's an interesting observation, um, but it does require further investigation. But the fact that there are two independent studies, both produced almost identical data from two different groups of, of populations, says there's definitely some kind of effect mm. here. We just have to get to the bottom of what it is. Okay, let's keep, keep drinking the coffee. <laughs> I'm going to take a sip while we hear from Elizabeth in Tableview what her question is. Good morning, Elizabeth. Hi, Miss Elizabeth. So, um, the wonderful Chris, please. Why is King Federer's right arm? Not a hundred times more developed than his left. What, why is whose arm? Roger Federer, the king. Ah, right, <laughs> I see what you mean. Yes, sorry, I, did, I couldn't quite hear the question. So the point that you're making is that when you exercise a muscle, it gets bigger, and since these professionals uh, are whipping balls around and moving mm. rackets at hundreds of, of kilometres an hour, day in, day out, why haven't they got an arm which is bigger than their leg? Well, the answer is that to a certain extent you you do get reactive development of a muscle. When you use a muscle a lot, there are conversations going on between the nervous system and the muscle tissue. There are also changes genetically in the gene program that's running in the muscle that's being trained. And this changes the biochemistry of the muscle. It increases the amount of contractile 
material, in other words, the force generating material in the muscle, and it also changes the blood supply to the muscle. But there are constraints on these things, and there is a limit of physiological adaptation. Uh, also, there are signals which are released when you do any kind of exercise that don't just see the muscle group that you are exercising, they go in the bloodstream and they travel via nerve signals to visit all the muscles in the body. So when you train, you do get a degree of region-specific development, there will be the muscle group you're directly using will have an additional benefit, but all the muscles in the body will become mm. more developed through exercise, including your heart muscle. And so you won't get gross asymmetry. And this is kind of protective because otherwise that would happen. You'd end up with an arm that never stopped growing on one side if you used it a lot and on a, a weak and, win, and a weedy arm on the other side. So there is a degree of local development, but there is also global gross development, which helps to keep everything in proportion. And those things occur all in response to exercise and stimulus. Hello, John. Hello, good morning. Listen... I, I, I live in Niagara, and the, when the planes come in for landing, they seem like there's something following the plane, above the plane. Is that an air or what? You mean like a ball of light or something? No, it looks like it's part of the top of the plane that comes away, and it's, I, I think it's to make that the communication is better. Okay, Chris, I don't know whether you get what John is saying. You're cleverer than me. Not quite. Um, One thing is true, though, that as planes come in, what they do tend to generate is low-pressure areas around the wingtips because the way wings work, they they are working by accelerating or or pushing air in one direction so the air pushes back on the wing in the other direction and creates lift. This also creates low-pressure areas around the tailing edge of the wing and because the pressure is low, the air there expands very quickly, which causes a temperature drop. And if you have a temperature drop, you can't carry as much water in the air, and it condenses. So you do tend to form little clouds or mini, mini mist trails around the wingtips and other low-pressure areas and the trailing edge of the wing. So what uh, may be being seen here as something coming off could mm. well be that vapour, which is forming in the low-pressure areas where there's that localised temperature drop around the the, the back edge of the wing, and that could be what it is. Let's take one from Twitter before we go back to the lines. Here's one. Please ask Dr. Chris Eusebius, why is it that unborn babies kick and move in the womb, but immediately after they're born, they seem like they're unable to do much? <laughs> well, <laughs> the answer is that very quickly during development, from, from about you know, 20, 23, 24 weeks, a lot of the nervous system is formed and a lot, lot of it is connected to things, including muscles. And we were talking about Roger Federer and other tennis players uh, developing their muscles by having that conversation between the nervous system and the muscle and that conversation triggers muscles to become stronger and it strengthens the communication between the nervous system and the muscle babies are no different so as their nervous system and their muscular system are developing inside the uterus as the baby is growing it moves around and kicks around because it is beginning to learn to make coordinated movements they're not very coordinated but they're coordinated enough that you know that you've got the correct interaction between the nerve and the muscle Hmm. Uh, A baby, if it couldn't have a conversation between the nervous system and a muscular system, wouldn't be able to breathe when it was born. It wouldn't be able to cry when it was born. It wouldn't be able to swallow properly. Uh, It needs to have a a degree of connection between the nervous system and the muscular system, and it needs it to be working and developed so that it can do those things because they're actually quite demanding. To, To breathe, you've got to lower your diaphragm, 
which is the muscle inside your abdomen. You've got to raise your ribs to put the pressure down inside your chest so the air flows in, and then you've got to reverse the process to, to get the air out. That all takes coordinated muscle activity. So babies need to make sure that's all working when they're inside. Now, the birth process itself is pretty traumatic. A, anyone who's had a baby knows it goes on for a little while, and if you'd been squeezed through <laughs> the inside of a, a duvet with a massive great sumo wrestler laying on the outside, squashing you as you tried to wriggle through the, the hole in the middle of a duvet, you'd feel pretty traumatised as well. So when these babies come out, they're exhausted, just like their mums are, mm. so they don't want to do very much. Um, but they do do some stuff, and they kick, and you'll see them sort of bouncing up and down and kicking and moving their arms in a fairly chaotic way. They do it to develop that conversation between the nervous system <laughs> and the muscles. They're learning mm. how to make those coordinated movements. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Garth, welcome to the show. What is your question? Hi, I'd just like to know from the Naked Scientist how a crocheted blanket keeps you warm, because obviously when it's full of holes, uh, it can't trap your own body heat. Mm. Chris? Hello, God. Well, I think probably what's going on here, it works the same way as a string vest, because you'd think if you wear a string vest, it's mainly all air, so why is that helpful? Well, actually, air is a very poor conductor of heat. And if you've got fibres of, uh, of the uh, crochet blanket or the string vest there, what they are doing is trapping a thin layer of air or making it easier for air to sit close to the skin and not move. So what you end up with is a layer of air which is a poor conductor of heat which gets warm from your body heat and then doesn't move away and therefore you reduce the gradient, in other words the slope of temperature difference between your body heat and the outside world because you've got this blob of warm air in the way and if the gradient is reduced there's a lower rate of heat loss from your body so it does in turn keep you warmer i think the blanket and the vest are working the same mm. way thank you garth lovely question let's go to walkerville donovan welcome to the show thank you so much yeah i got a question uh, i caught the back end of the news the other day and it's about an iceberg that broke off from antarctica and then um, i heard it was quite big in size and it was there's was, um, concerns that it might float past south africa and i just want to know more info about it if we, if we have any info regarding this mm. Chris, do you know anything I, about that? I'd need, to go and, I'd need to go and read the story about that specific iceberg. I must admit, I haven't been following the trajectory of all the ice, cu ice cubes, icebergs <laughs> in the Southern Ocean. I can have a look. Um, the bottom line is these things carve off um, from, from the ice sheet all the time, but some are bigger than others. Mm. And, of course, the, the ice, if it's big, has a, a relatively big volume to surface area ratio, and that means that there's a limit to how fast it can absorb energy and melt, and that's why they stay ice for a long time, and they then follow currents. And there are various interesting currents that bring material from the polar ocean down south, the southern ocean, and bring it up. There's a big upwelling down near South Africa. So there are currents that flow north and that, that could bring things up past you guys. Mm. But I, I don't know enough about the story to know exactly what course that iceberg's on. I'll take a look and see what I can find out for you. Okay, thanks so much for that question, and then maybe we can do that uh, next week. Chris, another Chris on the line. Chris, what is your question for Chris? Good morning, Eusebius. Morning, Chris. Um, I would Chris. just like to know, uh, good morning, uh, if the Big Bang started from a singularity, uh, um, then everything is supposed to be moving further away from each other, isn't it? How come you get colliding galaxies? like you get on the Hubble telescope. Yeah, okay, yeah. Chris. Uh, just, just backing this up very slightly, so yes, 13.8 billion years ago, give or take a few weeks, the universe <laughs> banged into existence with this point source, this singularity of enormous energy 
which then converted that energy into mass and material, inflated, grew very fast, and the universe is still growing today. Now, just because the universe is growing today, and what we mean by that is if we look at things which are a long way away, then they are going away from us. And the further away we look, so the further back in time we look, the faster they're moving away from us. And we, uh, this actually was the insight of Edwin Hubble, after whom the Hubble telescope is known. He got the first experimental evidence based on work published by a lady working from Harvard, um, uh, Dot Henrietta Levitt. And what he found uh, in the expansion of the universe is that things are largely, on average, moving away from us. But at the same time, that doesn't mean in a random system that there will be some aggregations of matter, say our galaxy, which is actually moving towards another galaxy, because in the grand scheme of things, everything's getting bigger, but some things are moving in one direction which will bring them into, inevitably, a collision course with others. Just because things are all expanding, it doesn't mean that some things can't also be moving closer together on a local scale, on a gross universal scale, things are getting bigger and further away from each other. Hmm. Johan in Table View, welcome. Hi there, Chris. Thanks for taking the question. Um, mine's quite a funny question, and with um, the most recent plane that went missing, that one from uh, Air Malaysia, I've, I've always wondered why is it that everyone looks for the black box, and, uh, and I understand why they need that. But more importantly, I'm not sure why that information can't just be backed up onto, call it a cloud account. Mm. I mean, I'm able to back up my phone um, intermittently every day if I like and have all that information sent onto a server. And I can then access that regardless of where the phone is as such. And I'm just curious why that sort of technology isn't applicable to airplanes for argument's sake. Well, to a certain extent, it is. it's a very good point you're making. Um, I agree with you. To a certain extent, there is data being continuously uploaded from aeroplanes to via satellites, the World Wide Web. If you go on aeroplanes these days, inevitably there's Wi-Fi on in the cabin and you, you can browse the internet if you want. Therefore, you are sending data away from the aircraft up via satellites onto the net at large. So there is no reason why this data couldn't be backed up. Aircraft engine manufacturers, for example, do this all the time. I work with Rolls-Royce, the company that make engines for aeroplanes. They account for about a third of the aviation industry. They have a coordination control centre in Derby, in the middle of England, and they are monitoring data from on real-time operating aircraft all over the world all the time. And so that data is being sent back to them. They're looking at how their engines are performing. And the reason for doing this, A, for safety, because then they can make sure they're doing what they should be doing the way they should be doing it. But also they can keep an eye on when engines need parts and servicing and they need to be updated so that they can have the right part on the ground in the right part of the earth before the plane has landed at its destination. So when it does land, there are no delays in servicing it, no, no downtime on the aircraft. So this sort of thing is being done all the time. What the flight data recorder does, though, is it is a gold standard documentation or log of what is going on in the aircraft, what's going on with all of the systems, what's going on in the cockpit, who's pulling what lever and pushing what button and what they're saying to each other. And it is built in a relatively indestructible way. And black boxes aren't actually black, by the way. They're red to make them easier to spot. They're a reddy-orange colour, but they're called black boxes for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, but I think increasingly, in the wake of what has happened with some aircraft, there will probably be a shift into a system now where the industry does start to adopt a data stream, live uplink uh, for all those sort of data types of data, rather than just archiving some stuff in the black box. 
for, for reasons that, that I think they probably did this historically because there was no World Wide Web, there was no easy way to transmit the data that, in the way they now can, in the volumes they now can. Now those pathways exist, I think probably that there will be a way of doing that, but it has to be standardised mm. in the industry and legally it's got to be robust and resilient as well because if it's got to be tamper-proof. If it's going to be in the legal record, we've got to know that it's unhackable, it's safe, and we can, we can depend on it. So all those things have got to be ironed out. I mean, those are all simple things to do. You can do online banking pretty securely or not, depends mm. on who you bank with, but you can. Therefore, it's not beyond the, the realms of possibilities that, that we could design a system that would do this. Now, I'm sure that's going to happen pretty soon. 26 minutes after 10. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Nicholas, what's your question for the Naked Scientist? Yes, my question is that I just want to find out for, that uh, what is happening to the hippopotamus because hippopotamus can stay inside the water for a long time and outside the water for a long time. But inside the water, I assume that it's supposed to breathe. What does it use to breathe? Because we fish in those gills. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no uh, hippos are very much mammals. Um, in fact, the closest living relative of the hippo, you probably won't guess this if you just asked it in a quiz or something, but the closest relative, if you look at the DNA sequences in animals, of a hippo is a whale. <laughs> so the whale's closest living relative is a hippo and vice versa. And, and it follows, therefore, that hippos do spend an enormous amount of time in the water, but they are mammalian, they are air-breathing, they have lungs, and although they are very good at being submerged in water, they will bob their head above the water and you'll just see the nostrils poking out and they'll take a nice deep breath in. But but they're pretty good at holding their breath. They're not as good as crocodiles. Crocodiles are reptiles, of course, but they have the record for, sub for staying submerged. Crocodiles, the big ones that live um, in Australia, uh, the uh, estuarine crocodiles, and also Nile crocodiles, can stay underwater for seven hours or so. And uh, scientists have now discovered they have an adaptation in their heart that makes that possible. Hippos don't have any of this sort of thing, but just because they're related to whales, and whales are also diving creatures and can stay down for hours at a time, um, that they're just very, very well adapted to uh, m controlling how they use oxygen and how they uh, actually expel CO2 from their body. Let's go to Randbeck next. Roger, welcome. Morning, Vesuvius. Morning, Dr. Chris. I just want to find out, uh, Dr. Chris, have you ever heard of St. Elmo's fire? Do you know what it is and uh, what causes it or what? I have heard of this, and I think some sailors have described this when there have been big coronal mass ejection type events. Um, is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Uh, apparently, what I've heard is that uh, the sailing ship builds up a charge, a certain charge, and then uh, if the lightning strikes the sailing ship, then uh, for about uh, uh, for, for hours later, everything just glows up in a, like a purple, bluish light. Even the people, you know, sailors themselves, you know, <laughs> they walk around with this purple, bluish light around them. And I, I think that's what that's what St. Elmo's uh, fire is. Well, th th it's certainly true that you can end up with places which uh, build up a charge, um, which is different to the charge in the sky, and that because of the uh, leak of current because the sky is at one potential and the earth is at a different you, different potential, you can actually get this spray of electric charge around objects which causes this glowing phenomenon. That's certainly true. Um, 
exactly when when that manifestation happens and, and whether it affects the people individually i don't know about that but certainly big objects you can end up with them looking like there's a sort of ethereal glow around them and this is because they are spraying charge to uh, around themselves like a shield almost as the electric field is breaking down and there is this flow of electricity from from the heavens down into uh, the the ground and you can do this with this i think a lightning conductor will make this happen because a point source and it, it sort of sprays this big um, envelope of, of charge around the building and the charge coming down from the sky dissipates around that I, th I think that will cause this sort of glowing phenomenon but if anyone knows better do please tell me one thing to add uh, that I forgot to say about black boxes is mm. that also the reason we've got black boxes on or red boxes even on aeroplanes is because some places that they fly don't have a direct line of sight to satellites all the time so you need that extra backup there of having um, an onboard storage system as well if you can't see a satellite to send the data to Thank you, Chris. That's all we have time for. Thank you for your knowledge and being lucid as always. Have a beautiful weekend. I will try my best. Thanks, Eusebius. Bye, everybody. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.